Hello, and welcome to the 19th episode of Stories from the Crisper Drawer. This episode, episode 19, is called Asparagus Christmas Tree, because sometimes asparagus does look like Christmas tree. <laughs> this episode is recorded on December 23rd, 2018, and boy, what a year have we had. It's almost Christmas time. So, Merry Christmas for all those who are listening, and Happy Holidays for those who are not celebrating Christmas, but have had various other things, such as ex- uh, having uh, experienced Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, all the other... Uh, nice festivities that happen around this time of year, but let's be honest, we're in Canada in the U.S., Judeo-Christian, Christmas is first and foremost, but I'm not saying anything bad about any of the other ones. Have fun, it's a good time, it's almost the end of the year, and we should enjoy uh, what we have left, and enjoy time with your family and friends and what you can do. So, let's go, uh, we got right into it. So this is the second last episode of this year. We will have another episode up. Um, it will be released on December 31st. <coughs> Probably recorded that day, too. About uh, Look back at 2018. What happened, what we felt like, what were some significant news stories I listened to. I'll see if I have a guest host or not. Who knows what we'll go from there. But sort of it's a look back episode. And then we'll have an episode early in the new year. A look forward to what's happening in 2019. And we might also do a little bit of that at the last episode in 2018. Who knows? So, let's go into it. Uh, first topic, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate for the Nintendo Switch. Boy, is that a fun game. It's got a decently long campaign, which I still haven't finished, but I have unlocked all the fighters to it. Um, really good way of uh, drip-feeding the fighters to it. Not really drip-feeding feeding it, but um, if you're not playing the campaign about every 10 minutes of gameplay in um, fight modes so of Smash or various other Smash modes... Every 10 minutes, a new f- challenger is going to come up, and it doesn't take you really too long to unlock all of them. Now, there are tricks such as starting the game, playing one smash, uh, one round of smash, exiting the game, and then starting it up again, restarting it through the uh, Switch menu. And then you'll immediately get a lot of them very quickly. I did that for a few, but to be honest, the campaign being it's so long, so fun, it's worth doing just to unlock everybody that way. And boy, it, it 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 is a fun game. Um, Nick, who uh, was who co-hosted the meme, uh, who co-hosted the meme episode with me, me and him played some wireless uh, Smash Bros against each other, and that was actually a really fun way of doing it. So when the systems are getting synced up or talking to each other, and this was local wireless or so on the same Wi-Fi network, um, you go into you pick your character and you go into a training mode where you get to sort of play and practice and have fun like that, and it was really good, and then once everything's all synced up and everybody's ready to get in, all of a sudden it launches you into the fight, and that was a really, really fun way. I haven't tried full online, because I don't have a Nintendo Switch online service, and I don't really view it as worthwhile in my book, but maybe it depends if Nick wants to play some more. I might consider uh, getting that and joining up with his friends and stuff like that, but it, it, it's a really enjoyable game. Um, the amount of characters, the amount of fun. Um, the music is great, of course. Uh, it's just it's ridiculously fun to get involved and just just have fun time playing that and you know what can i say another smash bros game but boy is it a great one tons of characters tons of levels um because not only do you have all these amazing levels but you also have um an omega mode which is more like the final destination where there's no uh it's just a single platform of that level with no height and then there's also the battlefield mode where you've got three platforms and that makes it for quite a lot of fun to do and we've got levels going all the way from the first smash bros on n64 
all the way up to new levels today, levels from uh, from Melee, from the GameCube era, from the Wii, the Wii U, and DS, uh, 3DS era. It, it's just, it is a complete game, and it is worth it. I have 28 hours in the multi, in the single player campaign alone. The it's just it's so fun to do. A little frustrating at times, but it, the game is really forgiving and tries to work with you and tries to make it itself a very fun time. So I can't, I can't. Uh, like, there's not much I can really say that's negative about it, besides from just the few very hard challenges. Mostly because you, get, like me, I get set with like three or four characters I'm really good with, and that challenge doesn't work on those. So then I have to figure out like, okay, what other character am I sort of good with that can probably make this work? The benefit with Smash Bros. Ultimate having so many characters is that there are so many combinations of that you can play with. Like, maybe you're good at Marth, but the, your friend you're playing against is way better against Marth with the character. Yeah, so now you have to figure out a counter to him. Brings tons and tons and tons of possibilities up. And I can't... The visuals are, um, like, just absolutely amazing. The smashes are great. Tutorial still works fine. Haven't played the classic campaign mode yet, but apparently that's supposed to be pretty good, too. I'm just... You know, December 8th, that when that game came out, that's just ridiculously fun. Really love it. Really, 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 really happy with it so far, and can't can't state that enough. Another uh, another great uh, addition to the series. <laughs> I mean, you, it's just there's so much in there, and that's excluding the uh, DLC characters that are coming in, and. Persona 5's getting a character in Smash Bros., which is just uh, absolutely amazing. Just just so happy. So happy for it. Another set of uh, characters that came in was... Uh, um, is Konami Castlevania? Or who, whoever produces Castlevania. No, I think that's uh, Bandai Namco. But uh, Castlevania's two uh, main characters from some of their more popular games are also added to the series. Um uh, just uh, <coughs> sorry about that just oh so much there so much to love in it too so i'm i'm very happy about that um just credit to nintendo for having a, a great game going forward and they're gonna support it for a while for sure um more news about the switch i think the switch is now the fat best-selling system of 2018 and I can believe it, considering that there is a new Switch version coming out in 2019, but the Switch is just so fun. Like, you can play it on the go, you can play it on a big screen, on a small screen TV, you can play it in a corner, you can play it with your friend who also has one, like, sitting around. The fact that it can host up to eight controllers on it, and that when you buy it, you actually have two controllers instead of just one. Well, you've got two controllers, one controller for one player, and two configurations. Well, actually, three configurations. And then you can pass the Joy-Con off to the left or right joy-con off to a friend and then play two-player, which is it's amazingly fun. I, I, it's just great day. Great, great, great stuff going on here and, and total total love about it. So, now that's... <coughs> that's about, about video games. Um, <coughs> there will be more in 2019 about video games. I have purchased Sp uh, Marvel Spider-Man for the uh, PlayStation 4. It did come down in price. Uh, it was like one day I put it on my list. It was ninety nine bucks. Uh, this is for the deluxe edition, and then next day immediately on sale for fifty three bucks. I'm like, that's a great deal. So I picked that up. Um, I haven't played it yet. 
I've just seen videos of people playing it, so it looks pretty damn good, and I want I can't wait to play it. And um, yeah, more more uh, gaming news in the future, I guess, going forward. So another thing um, that happened in the last uh, two weeks since I uh, posted, it's been yeah, it's been about two weeks. It's actually probably been longer. Yeah, it's been it's been longer. It's been almost three weeks since I uh, posted. But we had, uh, I found out that Andrew Heaton, who has done absolutely amazing videos for a reason, in fact, I will link a video, uh, the Libertarian Christmas, uh, <laughs> a Libertarian Christmas Carol video by reason for this year with Remy, me, uh, Austin Bragg and Andrew Heaton, Remy Mustafani, who's a comedian and makes these amazing music videos for a reason, just absolutely great. They have this great three minute long Libertarian Christmas <laughs> video. Uh, him and Austin it just work so great off each other. Um, they did uh, how the Facebook hearings should have went and uh, the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh where Austin Bragg is the chair. Uh, I guess he's like the president of the Senate and supposed to be like master of ceremonies and handling all the stuff, but he just doesn't give a crap. And Heaton always plays the person being roasted, either Judge Kavanaugh or... Um, or Jeez, uh, I can't believe it. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg. And it's just, it's insanely hilarious. <laughs> it's just, it's just great, great. Um, like, and they also did a video mocking um, uh, municipalities and towns across the U.S. and Canada doing stuff to get the Amazon HQ uh, second headquarters, which we now know is going in um, around, one's going not too far away from, Virginia, uh, from D.C. and Virginia, Washington, D.C. and Virginia. One's going pretty close to New York City, and then there's a third potential location, but eventually they're making these three municipalities fight each other for it. But let's be honest, they're probably going to set up uh, one office in Wash outside of Washington, one office in New York, and be kind of like, well, if you overtax us, we just move our stuff to the other one and keep going. It's, it's like, credit to Amazon for being this smart total shade and anger at the municipalities that fell for this like one place said they were going to rename their town amazon just to get amazon they're like gosh it's it's crony capitalism all over the place that being said um and continuing off in tangent going back to andrew uh heaton is that he has an amazing podcast which you can listen to on uh, google play and i itunes uh apple music and various other uh uh, Apple uh, or podcast hosting platforms, forms or uh, aggregators, I guess would probably be the better word for it, um, which is just, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, something's off with Andrew Heaton. And I've been listening, I listened to the first two weeks and they're 30 minute long podcasts and they're really, really good. He's having his comedian friends. He's having his uh, libertarian friends. He's having various other people on, and it's a daily podcast Monday through Friday. Uh, it's, they're probably taking a break over Christmas, and I don't blame them for that. But it's just, it's been so, so fun. Really, really fun to listen to, and it makes me laugh and it makes the days go by when, you know, there's not much going on. It's just, it's it's worth it listening to a 30 minute episode of Andrew Eaton and his friend and the, the fake commercial for Stuffy's uh, Diner, which is just absolutely amazing. I like I just I don't know why are libertarian comics so good um just, just it's so great uh there there's an episode with Remy on it on with Andrew Heaton uh, I don't know if there's an episode with Austin Bragg yet I haven't seen that I haven't listened to the, either if there is I haven't listened to it yet 
But geez, I'm, I'll put the link to this in the description below, either through iTunes or on his own personal page or something like that. You can follow him. At, uh, you can find him on various places. Uh, his Twitter a- account is the Mighty Heaton, which is cool. Um, and he's just done some really good stuff. He did uh, almost weekly with Andrew Heaton in 2017 with Reason, which was just again ridiculously funny. So yeah, if you can. Uh, Listen to him, too. Uh, don't stop listening to me, but please listen to him because his content's more uh, consistent <laughs> and, frankly, just re- is really, really, really funny and really good. Uh, so it looks like what it's going to be is, at least from the first two weeks I listened to, Monday through Thursday are more comedic with some lessons, stuff like that, and then Friday's the phil- philosophical and more serious day. But I, I, I don't know if that kept up past the second week. So he may have changed his schedule around. Uh, he's hosted on the Blaze TV. Uh, so I think there is a video version of this, but I'm not 100% sure. Most of the people he's been talking with are just through Skype, which is pretty good, pretty cool. But credit to him. Um, you know, putting out a 30-minute podcast every day. Um, you know, I have a hard time getting three one-hour podcasts out a month. And he's doing a 30-plus-minute one a day. So, you know, credit to Andrew for doing that. Cool cool on him. Cool on him for doing that. Total total respect to Andrew Heaton. Uh, oh, yeah, and I'll also have links to the Libertarian video, the Libertarian Christmas and, uh, and uh, <laughs> the Facebook and the Kavanaugh hearings videos, which are just great. And I'll see if I can, f- and I probably will find the uh, Amazon uh, Headquarters 2 Frenzy video as well, which was also really good. Uh, and more local personal news, uh, my family and I, so my brother, his wife, and our cousins uh, went to an escape room uh, earlier this month. Uh, it's the first time I've ever been at escape room, same with my brother and his wife, and which is which is really fun. It wasn't really an escape room. It was more find an object through going through various puzzles for us. We had an hour to do it. The goal was to find um, the golden apple in the Minotaur lair. And this was an, it actually pretty well laid out, um, just how some of the hints were. Now, there's a lot of fake direction given to you. So you're like, okay, so look for the... Uh, people with uh you know the the gods with the right hand raised are good and the gods with the left hand raised and there's stuff like that it's like you hear it in the instruction you're like okay that's something and you spend five minutes looking at it and then you're like that doesn't do anything anywhere here that can't be right and there's just all sorts of tricks and how they can actually uh, manipulate the, the room and make it uh easier and harder we did pretty good did it without uh, any hints it wasn't super fast like we did it in about 46 minutes, I believe, or 48 minutes, something like that. But we had a lot of fun while doing so. And I, I can I can see now why escape, escape rooms and find the objects and that are locked and hidden away in rooms are, are so fun. I've never been a big fan of those from the conceptual way. It's like I'm more of a, if I'm going to break away from something, I'm going to take an axe to the door or buy a shot or have a shotgun or just kick the door down because a lot of the times it's like, Oh, these doors aren't that hard. The, the brilliance in how they plan out and how they manipulate the mechanisms and make uh, everything work with magnets and all that and switches. It's just, it, it, it's cool. And I, we ho- I hope to try one, uh, another one with the rest of the family in the new year. 
uh, one potentially harder, one maybe easier, maybe more of an escape room-ish versus a find-an-object sort of thing. But we'll see. We'll see where we're going to go from there. So that was that. Uh, moving right along, today there is a lot to cover, and I don't know how much time it's going to take to cover it. Probably not too long, but I am going to go into... Uh, I am going to go into a few rants about politics. But let's throw that on the end. So let's go uh, first to The Green Book. So The Green Book is this amazing movie about uh, uh, Don Shirley and his, and his driver uh, his driver when he did the Southern United States tour in, it must have been the, the late 70s, I think. I can't remember exactly. No, it was in the 70s. That's right. It was... No, it was in the 60s because Robert F. Kennedy was still alive, and so was John F. Kennedy. Uh, probably late, 68, 69, something like that. Um, I think it was earlier than that. I don't I don't know uh, what time it was based in, but actually, probably definitely. Well, well 72. Uh, yeah, it has to be uh, mid-60s just because of uh, JFK. Uh, just, let me look this up. I'm... I'm feeling really bad about giving the wrong time period uh let's see when was it based in uh 1962 okay i was way off sorry a full decade out that's my fault 1962 uh where uh tony the lip uh tony lip actually not tony the lip tony lip was um sort of a bouncer like person who's a bronx italian classic uh, Bronx Italian played by Vigo Mortensen who's just great in it and so is the actor who plays uh, pl- plays uh, Don Shirley. Both of them are great and it's this fun interactive uh, thing about him fly- going through tour of the United States and Don Shirley being a black person that's a very 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 touchy place to go through at that period of time. So desegregation was already happening but you had a lot of people still stuck in their ways and were racist or like, oh, you can't, you can't, uh, oh, you're a person of color, so you can't eat in this dining room. And his tour is pretty much completely him playing for all these very fancy uh, upper-class white people. And you you watch in the movie just how the audience is to most where he's playing. They're not, there's nobody, there's no person of color in those audiences. It's purely white and he's being paid by them and it's, and he himself states that it's like, it's a symbol of pride for them that they can hire this amazing, uh, you know, black pianist and his, uh, and his ensemble, his trio to go and play music. And, and Tony Lip, who is an Italian, like, evidently is not the, uh, from early on we see he's, not, I wouldn't say he's a racist-like character, but it's sort of like he's not comfortable with the mingling. Uh, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I stick to my side of the street, you stick to your side. But he totally gets defrosted and just defends Don because he sees the overt racism of the South and it's just, it's disgusting to him. And he can't believe it. it's like, he listens to Don play his first night and he's like, this is amazing music. I have... It's like you can see the motivation for him is like this guy is great and he needs to be respected as that. Like, you know, he's got talent, needs to be respected and 
you know, it's quite quite a quite a heartwarming movie in the long run. Very fun, very 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 good. I I really liked it. And my parents really liked it, and it was it was worth seeing. Hopefully, it wins some Academy Awards. It's it's I just it's it. I wouldn't say it's an Oscar bait film, but it's just a nice film for the season. Just very good, very very nice. And speaking of films, I'm planning to go see uh, Clint Eastwood's The Mule. I can't believe Eastwood's like, jeez, he's like freaking 88 years old or something like that. He's really, no, he's not that old, is he? Uh, let me let me check this. Jeez, I'm fact checking myself because I can't. Uh, Clint Eastwood. I can't believe he's still making these great movies after all this time. Like you know. Uh, yeah, eighty-eight years old, and he's still going strong. I, I just, I don't know if it'll be his last movie or not, but he's just—he's got such a powerful presence on the screen. It's—it's—it's it's, it's amazing. Okay, so that was all the nice, fluffy stuff and nice and fun. Now to go into my my university degree side, my pol- political side, and also some economics, which I did not minor in. So, in Alberta, we're kind of in a what-the-fuck-is-up situation. Uh, our energy sector is in a slump because we're selling the oil we produce at a discount to the United States because that's pretty much who only who we can sell it to because all of our pipelines go through the United States to their fi- refineries. We don't have pipelines to the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. Or if we do, they're all full and we need to expand capacity. But Oh, God forbid, the province of British Columbia wants a considerable cut to get that pipeline through. And, well, anywhere east of Ontario, such as Quebec, hates the idea of pipelines going through and would rather uh, import oil from from Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, and stuff like this. It's just, it's, it's not a great thing. And the federal government has largely failed in procuring having the ability to access new markets. Now, I'm not going to just say that it's Justin Trudeau's fault, Prime Minister Trudeau, but Harper tried harder, but there should have been more done when he was Prime Minister, too. There should have been way more, it should have, way more work should have been thrown on it. It should have been easier on all this, uh, what would you say, like, the, the ability to get pipelines legalized and through. Now, I understand the whole, oh, we have to do environmental surveys, we have to get people involved. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I get that. It's like, if you own a nice piece of property and a pipeline's got to go through your property, you should be informed. But if your pipeline, uh, just let, let's look at the, the reality of the situation here. If the pipeline's going through a territory where nobody's living, but historically, at some point in time, there may have been a tribe of, na- of, uh, of aboriginals or natives... <coughs> living there sometime they they don't <coughs> live on that land anymore there's been farm there's been digs and they've there's no burial grounds but we now have to contact their ancestors uh you know, we now have to contact uh the the tribes of today and say can we build here and and then it's like oh well we want our slice of the pie too and it's like okay fine we can only do so much but then you get groups that are 
much more it's not the economics it's the politics of it like i'd rather be an environmentalist so i'm just gonna say no our tribe does not allow you to it's like okay so now i have to find a new way well no we're we're gonna follow you to every single different path that we don't have that we can't block and we're gonna block you that way and it's just it's it's a problem i know that it sucks that fossil fuels are the vast majority of the plant's fuel source and energy source and that fossil fuels are causing climate change and global warming and this isn't good in the long run for our planet but they're what we have now and the best alternative is really nuclear power and these environmentalists are more hateful of nuclear power than they are of gasoline oil and and i'm not a fan of coal but we're still using coal to make steel and various other components of our society now that's of just the pipeline issue Let's not get into the fact that our Prime Minister has decided to spend way more time on his progressive social justice agenda versus the economy of Canada. His um, economics minister has decided that his finance minister has decided it's better to pay Quebec even more money out of the equalization payments than uh, restrict them, than punish them for them saying, oh, we don't want Alberta oil running through our land to pipelines that we could ship it out to. Oh, yeah, that, that oil pays for the equalization payments, let's not forget, helps it. Alberta's been a have-not province since the equalization formula has been set up, and it has been a half-province since then, and has never received any equalization money from any but from the federal government at any point in time. And Quebec has received the vast majority. In fact, equalization is largely a bribe to keep Quebec from separating from Canada. I mean, true, if, if Quebec separates, Canada ends, but it seems like we keep appeasing these uh, Quebecers that, have, uh, that aren't really that strong of a population in Quebec to make them feel like they are this important uh, group of people in Canada, and maybe we shouldn't give them that power. Maybe we should be much more concentrating on the fact that they are this, they are this piece of, uh, you know, they're not melting into the melting pot, and they are, in fact, the, using their history as a means and as a weapon to say that Canada should pay them to exist here. No, 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 no. You should freaking leave. Get the fuck out of our country if you want to be that way. Go back to France. But France doesn't want you because they've got their own major problems. If you want to separate, separate, and we'll throw all the debt at you and you can repay all the equalization money you've had over all the time that you've been here complaining about it. So there's that. Now, because we can't sell our oil to anybody else but the United States, we're selling it at a ridiculous price. Like, I think it's a quarter of the cost of what uh, West Texas crude is selling for in the stock market, which is ridiculous, if not less. If we could get access to pipeline, if we get our pipelines out to BC, we could sell to China, we could sell to Japan, we could sell to India, we could sell to various other places and get access to a global market again. If we could run pipelines out to the East Coast, we could then sell to Europe and get them maybe off of their dependency on Russian oil and natural gas reserves, which Russia uses as a geopolitical weapon against Europe. Like If the European Union decided, oh, we're actually going to go to a fight with Russia because of what they've done in uh, Crimea and Ukraine... Russia would just turn the turn the taps, reduce the amount of fu- fuel getting through. Watch that happen. Uh, like you know, that's crazy if it does happen. It did happen in, in the early two thousands, where Russia totally controlled the um, supply of energy going out 
of their country, and they did it right when Germany was going through an unusually cold winter. It gets everybody pretty much in line when all of a sudden it's like, oh, you want to freeze to death? Or you you want to freeze to death? If you, or do you want to kowtow to me because you want to make sure people aren't freezing in the middle of the streets and dying from cold, from lack of energy? So, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm just, I'm angry about that. <clears throat> and our provincial government has done us no favors. <clears throat> Rachel Notley's NDP has been completely socially progressive in their ideas. They're they're pseudo socialist in their in their ideology. They spent more time complaining about the gay straight alliances at, in high school than actually in high schools and stuff like that. And how parents don't have to be notified if their kids are part of these gay straight alliance clubs. Meanwhile, they're fighting against. You know, they're saying we have to institute a carbon tax so that we can show all the other provinces we're willing to pay for our damage in the environment. It's like, well, okay, we did that, and it didn't get us any favor, so can we scrap this now? Because we're harming our industry. It's it's just it's disgusting to see how this province that truly does lift up most of Canada with its environmental resources it can bring to bear and sell globally is being... You know, the federal government has a foot on our throat. We're pointing a pistol at our temple in the province because, you know, we have to do all these insanely social programs that cost tons of money and have arguably very minimal effect in in societal life. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. We are subjecting ourselves to the national energy policy. And for those of you who aren't Canadian or aren't old enough to understand what the national energy policy was, the national energy policy was a policy brought about by Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, when he was prime minister in the 70s. Uh, and it was a way to... Uh, well, actually, it was the late it was the uh, late 70s, early 80s, when the oil shock from the world of the Iran revolution and the Saudis restricting oil and OPEC being very, very disappointed with the United States and probably over stuff relating to Israel. I have to look into that part more. But it, it basically, it set a price control, and one of the lasting effects of the price control was we actually saw our gas prices in Canada permanently rise. They used to be, like, if you went to a gas station in Canada, the price of a liter of gas would be equivalent to a price of a liter of fuel in the United States, and now that's not true. There's nowhere you can get that. There's nowhere in Canada that it's a one-to-one ratio. Like, the lowest cost of fuel in Canada is still higher than the lowest cost of fuel in the United States. And that's part of the international energy policy. But it basically was a way of, of fixing the prices and trying to protect Canadian markets, except it didn't really work. It just overpriced, it damaged, it led to the western part of Canada being completely betray- feeling completely betrayed by the federal government, as they should have felt. It, it basically, it meant the federal government got to choose who was buying the oil, how the oil was being extracted, and where it was going to. Even though all these major companies had invested billions and billions of dollars into the oil refineries and to the oil fields up in Fort McMurray and places around there. Now the federal government's like, well, no, we actually have to artificially reduce our sales or jack up our prices because you know there's been an oil shock and we, we have to do this and it's for our, our energy security and the U.S.'s energy security. And it was all this stuff and and it it really really was a bad idea and and it it's 
you know, it was also a way of extracting money from Western Canada to pay for the problems that were happening in the Eastern Canada at the time, where manufacturing businesses were starting to actually pull away from Eastern Canada. Ontario and, and Quebec have been manufacturing bases for factories, and those companies are leaving. Just like it's leave, happening in the United States Rust Belt, those companies are leaving and they're not coming back. Sure, some new businesses can come in and take over that, but you're never going to get the manufacturing base you had back in the 50s. It's gone. It's like, why am I going to pay um, a person in Oshawa, Ontario to build an F-150 when I can pay a person a third of the price in Mexico for the same quality as an F-150. And then when you learn that that third of a price I'm paying is actually considerable more buying power in Mexico than it is in Canada. Now, I, I know it's terrible, people being laid off in first world countries and then third world countries actually taking up the manufacturing base. But private companies generally pay considerably better in third world countries than government-operated companies do. A good example is the uh, Philips light bulb factory in uh, Vietnam versus the government light bulb factory in Vietnam. I think Philips pays two to three times as much as the government does, has actual health care and all this stuff. And it's where all the Vietnamese who work in the government light bulb factory eventually want to go to. Why? Because Philips is, has to compete in a global market, but they also want high quality, so they're willing to pay more. The government sets the rule. They're not going to pay more than they have to. At least they shouldn't. Speaking of NDP uh, and that, how the NDP has totally uh, allowed the unions to win on every single battle of the provincial uh, budget and expanded the union uh, employment base here in the province. I mean, they got rid of our they got rid of our major surplus of money, part of the heritage fund, and completely wiped that out. Now we're in debt debt to multi billion dollar debts because we have to spend all these on these social programs. And I, I get some of it. Like, we didn't have enough hospitals. Our schools were old. However, my solution to that is, okay, privatize them. You, obviously, the province is very slow on controlling and directing the pathway of both those systems. You've had years to plan for this. You could have started doing stuff decades ago. And to the credit of to the credit of government and to the people, we elected the conservatives in Alberta way too long. They had power for way too long and did and basically sat on their laurels. And we have the evidence of that of once Klein, Ralph Klein, stepped down. It was then Stelmack who wasn't that great. He wasn't bad, but he wasn't that great. He had a lot more ear on the rural communities, which the rural communities do need help. Let's not throw them out under the bus. They do need the ear of government to talk. They do have different, they have consistently different problems than the metropolitan society does and the urban society. But then he left because he got in a situation where he couldn't really fix it. He stepped down with respect and I, I like Stelmack wasn't the best, but he definitely wasn't the worst. Then we got Allison Redford, who basically didn't care and just as we now know, spent most of her time as premier enriching herself, meanwhile fighting against uh, the <coughs> Wild Rose Party, who was led by, uh, I can't remember her last name, Diane, and she wasn't that great, like she was a great opposition, but she had no real good ideas about where the Wild Rose should go. 
And then that all fell apart, and then they went under, and then Jim Prentice came in to fix it, and then lost the election, and then called an election very quickly, which respectfully, like, he shouldn't have called the election because he was a good guy, but he called the election because he thought, I don't have a mandate to rule, people need to vote me in. Of course, people were so dissatisfied with the conservative government and just government and province in Alberta, they voted in the NDP. They reacted. They did a major reactionary move and jumped completely across the spectrum. And how now have, what has that done? Well, Alberta's been in a recession practically ever since. We've never really left the recession of five years ago. And the NDP, well, the NDP are up for an election in 2019. We'll see if they hold it. I highly doubt they will. Um, I'm not happy with any of the choices right now. Like, I'd probably vote for the Alberta Libertarian Party over the Alberta Conservative Party. Just because I think, as strong as Jason Kent Kennedy is, uh, Kenny is here, he's not a, like, we are seeing this conservative uprising. The problem is that the conservative uprising in Canada, like Doug Ford in Ontario and uh, and the new prime premier of Quebec, like, these are good signs. And, and the consistent conservative government of Saskatchewan, which is now, like, Brad Wall, who was the pr premier there, is left, and his successors are doing great and is, like, the most admired pr premier in all of Canada. Like, the conservative movement is c purely taking back after the federal government went liberal, but they're not working together. And unfortunately, the conservative group of Quebec is a separatist group, which is marginally, again, like, Okay, you guys are conservative. We all agree on like government should get out of the markets, but you have no problem blocking it if it's for your little identitarian belief. And see, identitary politics cause problems. <sighs> well, that's it. So, Alberta, we're still in this effed up, fucked up situation because the governments we elected don't do what we tell them to do. And we didn't elect, well, we elected people to the federal government, and then Trudeau won the majority because of population redistribution, of population distribution over Quebec and Ontario being the vast majority of the, uh, being 55% of the Canadian population means that you just have to practically win those two provinces completely to be a head of government. And that's where Trudeau's power base is. He's Quebec and Ontario. He's a Quebec and Ontario liberal. When he comes up to Alberta, he sells us all these platitudes about, oh, I care about Alberta. And then he leaves and goes to BC and says, like, you know, facing out the oil sands is the is the number is a goal of the Liberal Party. It's like, okay, so so you guys aren't don't understand like the the Liberal Party. The way when he said that, and this was over a year ago, this was in 2017. He's 2017. He said, uh, facing out the oil sands in Alberta. So that's not. Um, a rising ocean lifts all boats. That's a drained bathtub. It's like he's draining the bathtub. Like all the the water is the economic value of our country, and he's just draining it all away because he's like, I don't want Alberta like damaging the climate. We have to do all this stuff to make the climate better. And you're like, okay, so what's the alternative for making money in Canada? Like, do you not have an alternative way of, for us to make money in Canada? I'm not saying that the oil sense is the best way. We need better, more distributed, and and better decentralization of financial wealth in this pro in this country to make sure that 
we're not all relying on one or two industries to make sure that Canada's working. Like we need various other industries and investment pathways. But what's your solution? But like, okay, high tech jobs. How are we going to get them here? Because he doesn't really give any real answers about that. He spends all the time like, well, I need my my cabinet to be fifty fifty like gender. It's like, who cares if the finance minister is male or female? I care that they understand what's going on in the country. I don't. I could give a shit if it's a girl or a boy being the finance minister, being the home secretary, being anybody. Just get, you know, hire the best people for the job, not the not the person that makes you feel like you're checking all the boxes on the social progressive liberal. Like, and when I say liberal, I don't mean classical European liberals, which are more like you know the government does good things, but it should largely stay the way. I'm saying like the American liberal, which is like, we have to intervene in the economy in every way. And, you know, what you do in the privacy of your own bedroom is fine, but you have to uh, do, you have to do it the way we tell you to do it. It's like, oh, God, it's annoying. Just freaking annoying. And more about Canada. Like, so if December and let's, okay, so that's the oil sands done. Now for another little rant. Canada, as of December 18th, now is under, now has what's called the Mandatory Alcohol Search Law, which is in addition to the Criminal Code of Canada. Now, what does this mean? Mandatory Alcohol Search means that police, upon pulling you over for any sort of traffic uh, infraction or violation or just anything they want to pull you over from, and note, I'm not being facetious against the police here. There are good police and bad police, and Bad police do things their own way, and good police try to follow the law and try to be less inconveniencing to the citizenry. And there's a spectrum of that, and I'm not going to paint all police with a bad brush, but let's say you have a taillight that just got damaged. Like, you know, somebody in the parking lot hit you, and you they didn't leave anything behind to identify. So you're driving home because you're like, oh, crap, I'm going to go get a new taillight. Tomorrow at 7 p.m., there's no repair shops open. I'm going to have to do it tomorrow. You got pulled over because your taillight doesn't work. Now, prior to December 18th, that was like license and registration. You know your taillights out. Yes, it got damaged. I'm going home. I'm going to get it fixed tomorrow. Okay. Okay, fine. I Because it's a recent thing, I'm not going to give you a ticket. If it was like an old thing and then you didn't have a damage sticker, then you would get a ticket. But, you know, you, you probably would fire a little police report and say like, okay, this is what's happened, blah, 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 and get the damage sticker up. If it's on private property, you can't do that. Um, they can't give you the damage sticker because it's private property. So continuing on from that, um, you then have what, – what's the phrase? Uh, okay. So, you know, you'd have that interaction. It would be a little awkward. You'd have to give license and registration. It's maybe not the best thing, but the officer 99% of the time would be like, okay, I understand. You're going home. You're getting off the road, and you're not trying to drive, and you're not trying to increase the danger to population. Fair enough. I don't smell any alcohol or marijuana in here or any reason. You seem to be fully alert. Go about your day. And that's an idealistic scenario. There's probably more nuance to it than that. And I'm not going to, like, I'm simplifying it down just for the sake of my podcast episode. So now, as of December 18th, monetary alcohol searches in. So now the officer can come up and say, Oh, you've got your taillight busted. Breathe into this breathalyzer to make sure you're not drunk. Make sure you're not going to pop a blow a 0.08. 
Officer, do you smell alcohol in me or in my vehicle? No, but I have. But I'm going to make you do that. Why? Because I can. But I'm not drunk. So then you blow and you find out you're not drunk. Okay, license registration now. It's like, <sighs> now I'm not saying that most of the traffic stops are going to go that way. In fact, I don't think most will. But this law does position it that if you're going through check stops, like in Calgary, we have a few check stops, particularly on major sports nights and other nights like that, where the police will set up a check stop on a roadway, a, typically a common roadway used, so a large roadway, let's say in Calgary, we've got Crowchild Trail it's used on. I saw one a few days ago being used on Bonus Road between the uh, community of Bonus and Montgomery. That's an interesting spot because there's absolutely no way you can get around that if you're going uh, east, if you're going eastbound from Ponas. You're just in it. But now it's instead of the officer having the discretion to just let anybody through, they are. I don't think it's they still have the discretion, but it's easier for them to say, "I need you to do a breathalyzer," and you have no recourse if you if they do that. You have to breathe for them. Now that's inconvenient. It's not great. My my objection isn't to the idea of like, oh, it's going to make the road safe, which I I argue, I'll argue against that because I, I don't think that that sort of enforcement has proven to work. I mean, let's put it this way. We banned, fi- like it's illegal to possess guns with certain things and criminals can't get guns, but they're still getting guns. Um, you know, we banned marijuana. <laughs> now it's legal again. How did that work? The It seems like the stuff we ban wins. Alcohol's been around for a very long time. People are still doing this. We've put the, we've continuously increased the penalties and fines. Now we're making more aggressive enforcement. Oh, maybe this might work. According to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, this might work. But I don't think that. I think that some of their statistics they used are definitely leading statistics that are not correct on certain ways of approaching this. I don't know if this is going to actually save two hundred lives a year, like mad believes it will if it does great and hopefully we only need this law in effect for a little while it's much like the the, the cell phone distracted driving law in canada and alberta except that's more of an alberta law versus a federal law and how officers have like there there's times they will completely enforce that and there's times they're like i can't be bothered with it but this is a more dangerous one because I mean, I don't know uh, about how Canadian policing works. I know in the United States, like, let's say that you pulled somebody over and they were drunk, uh, you were a police officer, and you didn't breathalyze them and didn't stop them, and they caused a crash. Like, your police department and the news might find out you were the officer who did it. I don't know if that would... I highly doubt that would happen in Canada. But that still puts onus on the police department to do everything they can. And at check stops, now that you can't say no and you're not able to get counsel to blow, there is this presumption of innocence which is now gone. You know, innocent until proven guilty. Not anymore coming to this. It's now guilty until proven innocent, which is much more of a French-like law. Slightly annoying. Slightly annoying about that. And I'm, I'm more against this more of the... not Like, I don't like people drunk driving. Who does? I don't like people driving high. I don't like people driving on a, any sort of substance that is dangerous to them. I'm a guy who's never had alcohol, and the closest thing to drugs is I have is I've had some prescription painkillers after I broke broke my arm, and I've had some, and you know I have the Tylenol every once in a while for my headache. So I am a very 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 clean um, person when it comes to substance abuse and stuff like that. I just I don't want to approach that part of stuff. I'm 
I'm not against the consumption of alcohol. I'm not against people having marijuana. Heck, I'm not even against people having the access to uh, heroin if they're doing it the safety of their own home and they're not risking anybody else and they're not forcing it on anybody else. If they are responsible enough to do it themselves, fine. Now, I know people are going to say, what about if they have kids? Yes. That I can... Yes, if you are getting high on heroin and you, you've got a kid under the age of something like that who can't take care of himself, I think that the community... Ha- that there are people in your family and your lifestyle who know you have the right to intervene to protect them because you're harming their rights then. What I mean is if you're a single guy or a single girl, single guy or single woman, no relationships whatsoever, like you have no kids, you've got no dependents, and you decide that on Friday night you're going to take a head of heroin and just go to sleep or just like stay in your house and not go out, I have no opposition to that. That is legally perfectly fine in my book. Why? Because you're not harming anybody. Now, government could argue that the method of accessing that heroin or illicit drugs was criminal because it went across and it exploited people in other countries, blah, blah, blah. Let's assume that... Let's let's take the most libertarianly nice assumption that the, the drug that you grew was grown by somebody who voluntarily chose to do it. The person who transports you voluntarily chose to transport it and was paid well, and they were all compensated well, and they all chose that job. If they could choose any other job for equal pay, they chose this one. There's no restriction on their market value and what they can do. That's a pretty big uh, jump, but let's take that. And you're going to do heroin in your own home. I don't like that you're doing it. But you're not harming me. You're not harming anybody else around you. Why should I intervene? I shouldn't. So, 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 the anti-alcohol search thing. I just—it's annoying. Feels like we're getting more to a police state-like thing, and I know that might be an overreaction, but still, Canadians, we we have a presumption of innocence. We 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 are innocent until proven guilty, and this. This law, the way it's written, is is kind of like I haven't read it, but the way it's described by the police force is like we and, and granted they have to have officers who are certified as M M A uh, M A S certified. Um, <coughs> which I hope is um, part of the training and certification is the discernment to not waste resources on people and not to harass people. And I hope that there is recourse where if you know. Let's say, God forbid, it's a man or woman who had a relationship with a police officer, and that officer pulls them over and does the breathalyzer test. And every single time they pull them over, there's always a fake reason and then a breathalyzer test and an inconveniencing, stuff like that. Let's hope that doesn't happen. It might happen, and let's hope it doesn't. That is, the, to me, the least inconvenient thing about it. That's like the, the abuse of power is what scares me and how this just goes to the point of here, you've pulled over. I didn't signal to change a lane on a road where there's practically only one other car on the road, which was you, you officer, and you were 20 uh, car lengths behind me. And I was driving perfectly fine. You've been falling for 10 minutes. Now I have to blow. Okay, fine. Let me call my lawyer. No, you can't do that. You got to do the breathalyzer first. So I have to be humiliated, and then I can talk legally to you. That's my annoyance. And I'm probably never going to even suffer from this. There are probably some people who will. Now, I... I there will be some people who will rightfully get caught by this law. Who maybe they don't, maybe their body does not produce the smell of alcohol, but maybe they, it stays in their blood system and they think they're perfectly fine and they're not. 
but still, I'd rather have legitimate probable causes, ways to catch these people, than just buckshot in the dark, like shooting in the dark and hoping you catch the right guy. Like we're just gonna screen everybody. Let's let's not do the security theater thing. Let's let's use intelligent design here. Let's use intelligent thought theory and work on that. And I'm also like saying by intelligent, not surveilling everybody like the state tries to. So that's that rant. Now to continue on. Last thing of the day, practically. James Mattis has resigned as Secretary of Defense for President Trump. Mostly because President Trump talked to the President of Turkey, Erdogan, and decided that he's going to pull forces out of Syria during the fight against ISIS, leaving the American Kurdish allies high and dry, now at the threat of both the Syrians and the Turks, and the Turks probably want to expand militarily into Syria. That seems to be what they've mostly been threatening to do over the last two years. And they haven't fought ISIS, it seems like. Most of the time they go in, they shoot at American allied forces. Not Americans, but forces that are allied with Americans. And this is a nice little heat zone where where, where Erdogan wants Turkey to be this new like caliphate nation, like this important center of Islam. And he is sort of the Islamo-fascist freak uh, that people think he is. He's not a very good guy in any sense of the way. I don't like him. I'm not saying we should intervene in Turkey whatsoever, but we should definitely watch these people, where they're going, what what Erdogan wants. Like, he's he's just... He's done as much as he can to remove Ataturk's influence on modern Turkey as he possibly could. He's jailed more journalists than China has, and that's something. I'm not a fan of China, but when China is now, like, second or third place on a list of bad things, like, there's worse nations out there that we need to keep our eye on. So there's that. And it was because Trump talked to Erdogan, and, and Trump's like a seat. He bears the ass impression of the last ass who sat on him. And that's uh, from Michael Moynihan, who I think referenced, uh, I think he got that from somebody else from the fifth column, which is, you know, it's true. Every time you see Trump, he's talking to somebody, and all of a sudden, after he's done talking, his mind has either changed or his direction has changed. You're like, well, for the last three months, you were saying, we got to fight this, we got to fight the ISIS, we got to protect the Kurds. Oh, Erwan, he's in. He's a good guy. He's a good president. I like his point. I'm pulling my forces out, and they're also cutting. Uh, I think they're going down to like twenty. They're cutting half the forces out of Afghanistan as well, which we have no plan for. I get it. Like the libertarian side of me tells me, and quite rightfully, that we don't need military forces all over the world all the time. And I'm a Canadian speaking to how I view the Americans. The American military can be a force for good. Going in and doing a job without a plan or an end game is dangerous. Just mission creep, just destroys what you plan to do. And then you get stuck in there and you get people killed. Like Afghanistan's actual mission was probably done around 2003, where they, they completely annihilated almost all of the Taliban forces and Al-Qaeda was on the run. And now they've stayed around for a while and it's, they've become a recruiting tool. And it, it's it's not a great thing. And of course you get this... this uh, like. The war on t- the global war on terror is the longest standing war the United States has fought. It's cost tons of money. Um, luckily, like the death rates in these wars are considerably smaller than World War One and World War Two, um, but it's still it's frustrating that these conflicts keep going. And, and what's what's annoying <coughs> about this is James Mass is a great general and a great Secretary of Defense. 
he probably wants the least amount of military force in the way to get hurt as possible. He wants, he, he's following out the orders the president did, and he's like, I cannot do this. I cannot have a president who, on a phone call whim with a guy who we sort of don't like and we know he's sketchy as hell, is going to change minds for all sorts of plans with our allies that we've had for decades. Just completely throw them out the window. It's like, yeah, I, I don't think I'm, you know, let's pull out, we're, we're done with Syria and ISIS. That was a terrible impression, but you get it. And you can't predict where Trump's going to go. I mean, the New York Times did an interview with him prior to him winning the presidency when he was running in the election. And the fifth column guys, Moynihan and Matt Welch pointed, Michael Moynihan and Matt Welch pointed this out, how he just, he jumps all over the place and how he he doesn't have a consistent thought about how he's running the free world. And it's, it's, it's terrifying now that somebody who probably was the strongest reason, like probably was the strongest voice against Trump's just stupidity and wanted consistency is now out. And they're going to replace him with somebody who's probably going to be more of a yes man. Now, you hope that this is one of the few times where you hope that the bureaucracy of the deep state does restrict what Trump's able to do. Now, not from pulling forces out of the, like, not that I don't want military personnel in harm's way as much as possible, and I want to reduce the amount of time they're getting hurt, and you know, we, we should pull out of um, various situations. Like, we should get in there, get our job done, have a definitive end table for ourselves. So that doesn't get told to the enemy. That doesn't get released. It's like, we have these objectives. We clear off. Check, check, check. And if more intel comes through, we add and we subtract based on stuff, and we try to get our job done as quickly as possible. I don't like this, how it's um, always these weird announcements with no real thought about what the end goal is going to be. And, and and this is terrifying. Like I thought Mattis was probably the was the only reason to believe in Trump because he was keeping Trump in line and he understood the military. And the military understood him. The people in the army understood and liked Mattis because he was a hardcore like get the job done or let's not waste our time on it. Like let's let's either do it or if it's going to be this complicated piece of junk that <coughs> that isn't going to get us the results we want, let's not waste our time on it. So there's that. And that brings us practically to the end of the episode. So, Merry Christmas, everybody. As I said, there will be another uh, episode just before the end of the year, sort of a year-in-review sort of thingamajig or something like that. But Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and if you don't listen to that, Happy New Year. And this is it. This is episode 19, Asparagus Christmas Tree. Jaws out.